You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Radio Ramadan 87.7 FM, 15.30 AM and live worldwide on rr365.co.uk. You can also uh, possibly view us and hear us on Facebook Live at Radio Ramadan. Uh, Glasgow. If you find us uh, on Facebook, I'm your host Zubair Akram and with me I have my guest Sheikh Radwan Muhammad, uh, alhamdulillah, all the way from Istanbul uh, for the audience of Glasgow. The track we were uh, going to be, we, we will be playing almost every day, the, the our um, tune for this show, Mustafa Jane Rahmat Pilakhon Salam. Shamae Bazme Hidayat Pilakhon Salam Mehre Charkhe Nabuwat Piroshan Durud Gule Baghe Risalat Pilakhon Salam Shehre Yare Iram Tajdare Haram No Bahare Shafat Pilakhon Salam Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Assalamu Alaikum Sheikh Wa Alaikum Salam Wa Rahmatullahi Barakatuh We welcome all the listeners and we welcome you to this show again uh third ramadan mubarak and inshallah iftar is going to be at 8:33 today in glasgow uh if you are tuned in to this program from somewhere else in the world please observe your local time 8:33 is for people in glasgow um radio ramadan at 87.7 fm sheikh uh, I, i have this kind of mizaj maybe the tabeer uh, when i when i no again when i get something i keep listening to it and it grows on you it kind of grows on you um and this hasn't left me mustafa jane rahmat billahum salam this has just hasn't left me this has been three days i've been actually kind of monitoring not monitoring i've been going onto the youtube what started off when i first watched the track it was 180000 and it's probably just under 2 million views within 24 hours maybe less than less than 48 hours mm-hmm. uh, i'm wondering what is it that gives this make something maqbool uh, make something accepted um in is it the person is it the kalam is it what who this is recited for is it the power of the lyrics what is it make something special and stands out from the rest mm, bismillahirrahmanirrahim so i mean it's, it's difficult why why would something be you know given a given a station above something else it's quite an interesting question but in in this context um this is obviously an a process and a, a, a means of um, praising the prophet sallallahu and this is something that's been done throughout islamic history to stretch all the way back you stretch it back, right back to the time of um the companions of the prophet sallallahu in fact abu talib abu talib he would be in the meccan period obviously so if you think of where he is he is the uncle of the prophet sallallahu and he and he's praising his nephew and his many verses of poetry that he composed in which he praised his his, his nephew one of the lines he said fa fa shaqqa lahu min ismihi ismuhu liyajillahu fadal arshi mahmud wa hada muhammadu he says and allah took and extracted his name meaning muhammad from his name which is mahmud liyujillahu so that he gave him honor and and um, and and status for the arshi mahmudun and the one who is in possession of the arsh which is arsh of allah which is a indication of allah's throne and power and majesty is mahmud wa hada muhammadu and he said my nephew is muhammad and so right from not even from the companions that lived at the time of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam in his time in madinah al-munawwara we have it all the way back to 
uh, Mecca to Al-Mukarrama and given the difference of opinion amongst scholars and, and historians about the Iman of his uncle Abu Talib itself, it's irrelevant here in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the context of the fact that he's praised by you know, him, not because he, he's his uncle, but because he says Allah is the one that chose the name Muhammad for the Prophet wasallam, which is why it's such a rare name. You know, Muhammad is such a, 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 a rare name amongst the Arabs before the Prophet wasallam. There's probably four or five people in the history of the Arabs before the Prophet wasallam was even considered to have had that name. And so even the name was protected. And so you, you're left, why do people, in, despite the vilification of the Prophet wasallam, vilification like nobody else. I mean, let's be clear about this. There's nobody at this moment in time in history over the last, say, 150 years who's been vilified more than the Prophet ﷺ, at the same time as being adored and loved and cherished by more people than the Prophet ﷺ. And this is why the Prophet said, وَمُحَمَّدٌ فَرْقٌ بَيْنَ النَّاسِ It's in a hadith of Bukhari in which the Prophet said that Muhammad is the criteria between people. He splits people. The people that will go to one side and will go to another. The Prophet ﷺ is not a magnolia. You know that you talk about people that everybody... Just is plain and everybody says, okay, it's fine. Everyone can agree. And, and, and the Prophet has got a, a message. He has got um, very, a very strong message. And he's got a lot of important things to say to humanity. Because of that, many people of vested interest will not want to listen to it. And this is why the, you know, the Prophet came out with the claim of, claim and, um, you know, announcement of prophecy. Look at how it parted everybody. You know, on the one side was majority of people, and the other side was people like Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Ali and Sayyidina Uthman and uh, Abu Talha. You know, very small number of people. And the Prophet had to work to get these other people in. But something that nobody could deny was the fact that he was praiseworthy. Hmm. That he was Al-Amin. That he was, you know, he was somebody that they could trust with their own possessions, even when they were at war with him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So you can imagine... They're about to go to war with the Prophet they would leave their goods with the Prophet while they're going to war with him. And this was something that, you know, this is why, you know, how are so many people listening to, for example, the, 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 the actual intro that we're using, um, oh. the Na'at that we're using. Why are so many people listening to it? The first aspect of it is the fact that he is praiseworthy. Muhammad. Like, it doesn't matter what aspect of his life you look at. It doesn't matter how you view him. You cannot but respect the person and 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 glorify the content of content of character the Prophet had. And when the Prophet used to, you know, this hadith of Sayyid Bukhari, which the Prophet in Makkah al-Mukarramah used to hear about people slandering him and backbiting him. And it's it's a lesson for everybody, to be honest. If you if somebody attacks you or backbites you or slanders you, there is an aspect of the fact that you know there is somebody that knows the truth, and that's Allah. And so in the context of somebody knowing the truth and somebody having hearsay, which one would you go with? I would go with the one that knows, knows the truth. And the Prophet needs to say, they're, 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 they're slandering and they're, and they're attacking somebody called Mudhammam. Wa'ana Muhammad. They're attacking somebody who is called the blameworthy. Who is this one? Because I'm, the Muhammad, I'm Muhammad, I'm the praiseworthy. So he had a complete certainty in the fact that, Prophet, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had created him in the most perfect of forms. With the most perfect of character, that indeed, O Muhammad, you are in complete mastery over the best of characters. The Prophet was absolutely certain about the fact that Allah created him in that, in that form. And so, when you see people, you know, listening and, and being infatuated by things that that remind them of the Prophet, there's no surprise. And if you add on to that the fact that the words, I mean, the, the na'at that you're talking about, is such a poetic. I mean, in terms of, you know, you would say, I mean, in terms of li- literature on praise of the Prophet, it has an extremely deep poetic significance. But also, it's one of these um, na'at that has almost like every line you would have a verse of Quran or a hadith that is sahih that just underlines exactly each part of what he is actually saying. So it's Ahmad Rida Khan. He was known to be a great, you know, infatuated lover of the Prophet ﷺ. In fact, in t- to the point of, you know, loving the Sunnah, loving the, 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 every aspect of the Prophet ﷺ. You know, you would say to the point of, of um, it being, 
um, perhaps going over to, mm. you know, being over exuberant. But you can't say that because the Prophet Islam, wherever you praise him, there's nothing that you can do that praises him more than what he deserves. But his language, his he was a, he was a scholar of hadith, so he knew all the every line was backed up by all these instances in the seerah of the Prophet that say that yes, that is why this line, this is the hadith mm. that proves it. Mm. This is the. I remember, you know, before people would read and write, and most people can't read and write still properly. This was the way that you knew your prophets, This is how you learned your religion. This is how your great great grandmother would have taught her child who Allah was, who the Prophet was, through these things that they sang and they memorized. And essentially it was it was something that was a, you know part of the Quran and Sunnah because it's describing the Quran and Sunnah perfectly in the language of the people. And that's why people have such affection for the Prophet because they might not be able to read and write Arabic. For example, in Pakistan. In, in, I mean, I, I can't continue in English for this one. I, I just... It's my acquired language, so I struggle. Mustafa uh-huh. Jane Rahmat Pelakun Salam. Yeah, Mustafa is right away. Yeah, right away going Mustafa, the, the Mustafa. one that's chosen. Jane Rahmat, which is the, 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 the universe of, of, of mercy. May there be a million, you say a million salam upon him. So this is a person. So what's amazing about this na'at is that first of all, he, he describes the Prophet and says, the Prophet deserves this, this number of praise okay and then what he does is he gives a proof of that so you can say okay you know Ahmed deserves a hundred pounds mm. or Zaid deserves a car so what's the Prophet deserve Mustafa Jani Rahmat Bilalahu Salam that the Prophet Asim, who is the chosen one should have a million salam upon him why the next yeah. line will say why Shamae Bazme Hidayat Bilalahu Salam so yeah so this this um, this paragon of light who's giving light to the whole universe and guidance, because of that, he should have a million salam. It was, that's why. Oh, so each line is saying, first of all, he'd, he'd has these million salawat on the Prophet And then each line after that will tell you why. It's a description. This is just ultimate. Shahre yare iram tajdare haram Nobahare shafat bilakum salam the two titles given. Yes. 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 You know, each of these is qualities that we know the Prophet has. And so, you know, the, the illiterate person in the village is listening to this, or the educated professor in the university is listening to this. Each of them knows how deep each line is. And so, you know, so you know what happens is that you, each line you, you're left wondering and mesmerized by the meaning behind it. And so this is just a, it's just one of these things the Prophet was praised by the companions. There's, Ibn Sayyid al-Nas has a book called Minhal Madah, which collects all the over 200 companions that wrote poetry in praise of the Prophet. So, you know, from that time to this time, in every single language that you know of and that you don't know of, there are people that are trying their utmost to express the gratitude and love and, and affection. And conviction or faith that they have with the Prophet and all of them, you know, every single one of these is just taking one small speck from the Prophet as Imam Busiri says. It's almost like a just a small handful handful from the ocean or a splatter from the rain. That's it. I mean, even that poem that you're talking about isn't is this a drop? In the attempt to, you know, do justice to what he did for us, gave us guidance. If you just say he was a guy, you know, like Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said that, you know, when he was doing the hijrah with the Prophet sallam, and uh, it was a very dangerous time. Obviously, there was the Meccans were after him with a with a bounty over the Prophet's head of over a hundred camels, um, and when somebody stopped them and they asked Abu Bakr, "Who's this person with you?" and he says, "Hadi, Yahdi Tariq. He's a guide." 
he's guiding me on the on the path. In other words, you could say, well, he's just uh, you know he's 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 directing me to where I'm going. But Hadi, the Prophet, one of the names of the Prophet is Al Hadi, the one that guides. Now that would be sufficient if you just said the Prophet was Al Hadi. He guided me to all the greatness that I've had in my life. In your life yourself, if somebody points you towards something that ends up being so you know productive for you or successful for you, you never forget that person. Hmm. For example, I was in Istanbul in '96, um, I think it was, or something around there, and I was stuck where to go, and I was you know refused travel into Syria. And I met this man in in a cafe, in a, in, a, in one of these Turkish cafe, you know, old the tea places, one of these cheap tea places. And he was sitting there, and he and, and he was American. I don't know who's American. We started speaking, and he told me where to go to study. So he said, "Go to this place." He gave me the name of a person, a sheikh, and he told me the city he lives in and the country he lives in, and said, "Just go here." And I don't know who that person was. I never met him since. I gave him you know, the coat I had. I had, a, I had a green trench coat on. on. I gave it to him before I left. Um, I can't even remember his name to be honest, but he he gave me a place to go, which changed you know very clearly the way that I you know my life went. And forever grateful, forever grateful. And all he was a had, he just guided me for, in one small aspect. Just told me go there. That's it. The Prophet is guiding you in every single aspect of your life. So if you want to start, you know. Uh, you know, a fan page mm-hmm. with this is why I love Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You, you, you're you're going to exhaust yourself. You know, if you've got, you know, somebody teaching you how to act, somebody teaching you how to write, somebody teaching you how to do trigonometry or somebody teaching you how to do business, one small aspect, and they have their own feelings as well, you never stop praising them at all. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it doesn't matter who you are in your life, male or female, I don't want to go into the gender here, but, you know, mm-hmm. old or young, professional, illiterate, leader, follower, it doesn't make any difference, your title. Child, there is something that is uniquely precious about the Prophet And so with the detractors, you know, in fact, it was, it was actually somebody, my wife actually showed me a piece of a saying um, in which it says that, you know, it's only the fruit-bearing trees that have thro- have stones thrown at them. It's a Turkish saying, it's a proverb. Mm. You know, you know, it's um, it's just meyve verelen ağaçları taşınır. It's only the trees that have fruit that people throw stones at to get the fruit. And so, it's only the people like the Prophet Ali Salatu Wasalam that people will attack. Because he has so much to get. क्या कहते हैं उर्दू में कि जिस दरख्त पे फल लगता है उसी पे पत्थर बरसते हैं। अच्छा इस ये उर्दू में भी है। उर्दू में जिस दरख्त ये आपने हमसे चोरी किया है ये से। जिस दरख्त पे फल लगता है उसी पे पत्थर लगते हैं। So this is the Prophet because look at the look at the rage of these politicians in continental Europe against the Prophet or these people in America that are evangelical hate preachers that hate the Prophet Ali This is only because he, he he has so much that they're just jealous at one level. But remember, the Prophet is so generous. Mustafa Jani Rahmat. You know, when we're saying that, we're thinking, okay, Mustafa, the chosen one who is the embodiment of the universal mercy. It was such that the people that were killing him, attempted to kill him, to assassinate him, to run after him, like Amr ibn As, for example, Suhail ibn Amr, Khalid bin Walid, all these people, Ikrama ibn Abi Jahl, all these people, Hind, Hind the, the wife of Abu Sufyan, all these people that were so antagonistic to him, at a certain point just turned. And uh, it's well known that Amr ibn Asr radiallahu anhu, he was so ashamed of his enmity towards the Prophet that when he became Muslim, he never looked to the Prophet's face. He's one of the few companions who was who were, who were um, you know, known to not look at the face of the Prophet after he became Muslim. But he used to look at before he looked at him before Sallallahu And you know, he, you can imagine the enmity he had. But then he asked the Prophet to forgive him and to accept his, his Islam. And the Prophet used to love him so much that at one point it was it was just when he was getting ready for a battle. He was getting ready and he prepared himself and he looked, you know. 
the Prophet, he said, the Prophet looked at me in a way that showed his affection to me. And I said to the messenger, eh, who is the most beloved of people to you? And the Prophet looked at him and said, Aisha. And then he said, so that's from the women, but from the men, who's the most beloved? And Amr thought it was him himself, because the Prophet looked at him with such affection when he came in in preparation for this battle, that he asked him and he said, the Prophet said, Abu Bakr. And he thought, well, that's the, 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 the father-in-law of the daughter, so that's fine. This must be me next. And he said, Umar. Hmm. So the funny thing is that the Prophet created such affection, even amongst people that had enmity towards him, that he deserves this, this title, Muhammad. He deserves this title of Alameen. He deserves these titles that we, you know, we provide him for, from our lexicon, which is limited. You know, what, how many words can we use to describe him? Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You know, it's limited by the amount of blessings that we have received from you know, him by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the name of Allah, the entirely merciful, the, the entirely merciful, the especially merciful. The time of their account has approached for the people while they are in heedlessness turning away. No mention comes to them anew from their Lord, except that they listen to it while they are at play. With their hearts distracted, and those who do wrong conceal their private conversation, saying, Is this prophet except a human being like you? So would you approach magic while you are aware of it? The Prophet said, My Lord knows whatever is said throughout the heaven and earth, and He is the hearing, the knowing. But they say, the revelation is but a mixture of false dreams. Rather, he has invented it. Rather, he is a poet. So let him bring us a sign, just as the previous messengers were sent with miracles. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Shuru Allah ke naam se jo nihayat meherban rahim karne wala hai. Ikkisvi surat Quran Hakim ki sura Ambiya, jiski ayat hai ek so bara. Qareeb aagya hai logon ke hisab ka waqt aur wo hai ke ghaflat mein muh mude huye hai. Unke paas jo taaza nasihat bhi hai, unki rab ki taraf se aati hai. Usko baatakalluf sunte hai aur khel mein pade rehte hai. دل ان کی دوسری ہی فکروں میں منہمک ہیں اور ظالم آپس میں سرگوشیاں کرتے ہیں یہ شخص آخر تمہارا ایک بشر ہی تو ہے پھر کیا تم آنکھوں سے دیکھے جادو کے پھندے میں پھنس جاؤ گے رسول صلی اللہ علیہ وسلم نے کہا میرا رب ہر اس بات کو جانتا ہے جو آسمان اور زمین میں کی جائے وہ سمی اور علیم ہے وہ کہتے ہیں بلکہ یہ پراگندہ خواب ہیں بلکہ یہ اس کی من گھڑت ہے بلکہ یہ شخص شاعر ہے صدق اللہ العظیم اللہ تعالیٰ نے یقیناً سچ کہا ریفلیکشنز آن ویڈی رمضان گیسٹ شیخ رضوان محمد اینڈ ان دس سیگمنٹ آف آر پروگرام وی گوئنگ ٹو کور سم انڈر لائن تھیمس آف دیز فیو ورسز دیٹ وی ہیو پرزینٹیڈ فرام سورہ امبیا 21st surah of Quran. Uh, yesterday we just covered 
just slightly covered, I would say, in half an hour. اِقْتَرَبَ لِلنَّاسِ حِسَابُهُمْ وَهُمْ فِي غَفْلَةٍ مُعْرِدُونَ And uh, I was just reminiscing the, the beautiful commentary that we heard from a sheikh yesterday that اِقْتَرَبَ لِلنَّاسِ حِسَابُهُمْ وَهُمْ فِي غَفْلَةٍ مُعْرِدُونَ The time of people's judgment has drawn near, is coming towards us, and yet we are turning away. And the reason for that is that we as humans become heedless. And I remember in Reflections, we covered the, the concept of heedlessness, ghafla, in a lot of detail at one point. Uh, the definition of ghafla, what, what is ghafla and what causes it. And then the symptoms of ghafla, of heedlessness. And this seems to be one of the symptoms that once we are in the state of ghafla, the state of heedlessness, we tend to forget that there is going to be an audit. There is there tends to be, there is going to be accountability. Sheikh, shall we continue from there? Yeah, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So this verse, first verse is important. I think generally when you're studying the Qur'an, I think when you're looking at a chapter of the Qur'an, um, it's very important to get the introduction of the chapter um in its proper context and to understand it deeply because I think that makes such a difference to the rest of the chapter. I've, I've, I've noticed this myself when I'm studying a chapter of the Qur'an or memorizing a chapter of the Qur'an. The first introduction, the first opening, the first um, interaction with the chapter is extremely important to understand you know, you know, who's being spoken to, what is the theme of the first chapter, the first verse, sorry. Um, what is this kind of nuances of the of the first you know introduction first verses? How much depth is there that we may neglect and then assume that the rest of the chapter is quite simple and it's you know uniform and it's there's nothing de- of depth and spiritual insight there. So I've always felt that you know even in the reflection show when we started uh, any of these of uh, these sections, I've always you know, just allowed myself to reflect upon the first couple of verses properly. So it allows you to, I would say, calibrate yourself and your soul and your your mind to everything that is going to come up later. Extremely important. Um, and, um, you know, once we start to look into that, then we start to look into the other themes that come up. And those themes are extremely important as well as they, as they kind of unfold. So that's why, you know, to reflect upon iqtaraba, what iqtaraba means, um, in terms of its mutual movement, the kind of, you know, multidimensional aspect of this chapter, iqtarab, linnasi, which is human beings, and human beings that we know are human beings from the perspective of their negligence and their forgetfulness, and their hisab. Hisab is something everybody accepts that you have to pay. You go to a restaurant, you have to pay. You know, you take a loan, you have to pay, repay. Um, you, you take on an obligation, you have to fulfill it. That's a hisab. Everybody intellectually, rationally knows that that is the case. And so the response should be, and they're ready. So this should be the, you know, the perfect thing would be that they're ready. They're waiting for it. It's almost like the, the enemy, the enemy army is arriving, and everybody's ready to to face them. No, the Quran creates the contrast between light and darkness, night and day, falsehood and truth, by saying, "Wahum fi ghaflatin And while they, and the state is that they, in this situation of intense fear, should be ready, but they're in heedlessness. They're unaware. They actually don't even know. Whereas they should know. I mean, the whole point is everybody knows that there, there, there is there is recompense and there is payback time. They're in ghafla, heedlessness. Heedlessness arrives from a engrossment in the world and a, a loss of um, perspective and a loss of you know a compass in life. And then that leads to what is their own responsibility, which is mu'aridun. They are turning away. And and this this is why this chapter has this interesting you know dual aspect of the one perspective, the qada of Allah subhanahu wa taala, which is Allah is decreed the hisab has decreed the world to work upon the basis of um, judgment and recompense and just deserts and all of these ideas. 
that's qada, that's just the way the world works. Hmm. And then there's another aspect, which is the other side of this coin, which is a big issue in, 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 in our lives, which is our freedom, free will and predestination. You know, the second part is that we have the ability to be ready and to prepare and to act. But what, what's happening? وَهُمْ فِي غَفْلَةٍ They're in a complete state of neglect. مُعْرِضُونَ they're, they're intentionally turning back away. مُعْرِضُونَ And so, you know, if somebody said, why is God going to punish these people? Allah has given you the answer. Things and causing wars. And you'll just be left? No. Hisab is something that's rationally justified, as I mentioned yesterday. And so, on what basis can somebody... You know, ask Allah, why are you taking us to task on the Day of Judgment? If they had the ability to be mustaidun, ready. And so the Quran, I mean, I find this such a fascinating introduction because the chapter is called Al-Anbiya. Anbiya are prophets. Prophets come with a naba. In Arabic, you know, nabi in Arabic can mean, you know, in Kitab al-Istilahat of al-Thahanawi, he mentions that Nabi as a word has, I think, three, he mentions three meanings. One of which is Naba, which is information. To, you know, the prophets provide information from the unseen. And the other one is um, Nabi, which is a pathway. And the other one is Nabwa, which is something elevated. All these three meanings are encapsulated in a, in a person called a Nabi, a prophet. Because they bring information from the unseen, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're elevated in their characteristics and their status and morals. And they show the, the path. And so the most important message that can be given to people is that you're responsible for your actions on earth against you, yourself, other people, and with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's simple. Hmm. And, and can, can anybody disagree with that? Hmm. Essentially, if, you, if, you, if somebody said, after you die, you know all those things you've done that you thought you got away with, you're going to have to re- revisit them. Can any ra- any anyone rationally say no? That should not be the case. So what I was saying is that the time of sorry, the, the time of people's judgment has drawn near. So that's news, right? This is just a piece of information that's given. It's coming. It's, you, if if you accept that you're going to die, that's it. And and you accept you accept that it's morally right and rationally justified to judge people, and so justice pre- should be done. That's so that's, pre- that's predestined. And yet, then there is, you know, uh, Jabr and Qadr, right? So, the, uh, or so our choice is to be attentive to it or be heedless. So, the, the second part of the verse, the same verse, is telling us where's our responsibility, where's our um, where's our culpability, where is our lacking and, and falling short. It is wahum fi They themselves, Allah says wahum, they're in the state while they're in a state of heedlessness. Mu'ridun turning back. So if Allah said, if, if they said to Allah, Allah, oh, this hisab came, we weren't ready, Allah will say, well, you were the people that were in ghafla. Wahum, not Allah has created them in a state of ghafla and has made them summum bukmun umyum fahum la yarji'un. This is something else, a different context. This here is telling you that. So Sheikh, the signs of heedlessness. The signs of heedlessness, you know. Symptoms. Symptoms, the signs, this, heedlessness is one of the most pernicious, deadly, if not the most deadly spiritual diseases, as mentioned by Abdurrahman al-Sulami. It is something that has so many tentacles. It's like the worst weed that you can imagine in your garden. I know people are weeding in April in Glasgow or wherever. It's the time when you get rid of, I'm sure it is probably the time. I'm not a horticulturalist, so I'm not completely sure, but I think... Imagine a weed that you pull one out and another one sprouts out somewhere else. And there's there's just a a network of roots in the whole of your garden. A ghafla is like that. A ghafla is something insignificant. It's not like a tiger, lion, you know, ferocious dog in the back garden that you have to just get rid of, which is like anger, ostentation, pride. These are spiritual diseases that are like specific animals that you can see and you can deal with very quickly. At least you can see them. Ghafla is something that creeps up on you and before you know it you are just not essentially what it means is you're not remembering Allah Allah does not encroach into your discussion like Ibn Attal al-Askandri said that 
الغافل إذا أصبح ينظر ماذا يفعل. The heedless person when they wake in the morning, they think what can I do? What can I do? Everything's about themselves and what they can achieve. والعاقل إذا أصبح ينظر ماذا يفعل الله به. Whereas the intelligent person, the yaqid, the person who is remembering Allah, will think, what does Allah, what does Allah want me to do today? What does God want me to do today? What are the obligations that I have to other people that I need to fulfill today? And so, ghafla is one of these very serious things which don't look serious, but they're extremely serious. And when scholars talk about the, the treatment of this disease, they talk about numerous things, numerous, um, you know, you know, kind of, you know, kind of cures to this which help. There's not just one. There's praying in the Prophet There is constant athkar. One of the most important that they mention is remembrance of death. Mm. Hisab, remembrance of your hisab. So they talk about things like remembering the people that passed away from your relatives and family and friends who are now facing their hisab, being questioned in the grave. That will t- bring you back into the state of fighting ghafla. And uh, Abdurrahman Sulami himself, he said that the most beneficial you know, reward or, or cure for, for ghafla is to, is to find a person who's, who's been cured of the, of the disease of ghafla itself. In other words, a person who's awake, a person that is aware of their responsibilities. And he says, you should then study their use of time. And that in and of itself is so important. And also to to observe their how they deal with things. You know, if you if you know a person who's ghafil, you can tell from the way that their their life goes. Agitated, fearful, um, confused. Everything that happens has an immediate effect upon them. So imagine something goes wrong right away. They go into a state of depressions and and difficulty and hardship. A person who is not in a state of ghafla, in a state of, you know, yaqadha, which is a remembrance of God and knowing his place or her place in, in the cosmos, when they're afflicted by difficulties, they know that there's something in that for them as a test and they get ready to, you know, to essentially deal with that test. And so this is the difference. The two different, the two people are completely different in terms of how they use it, how they approach and so this chapter of the Quran is giving you the contrast of a type of person who is the majority at the time of the Prophet ﷺ at that time, who were the people who were the Quraysh, who were been giving the message, and they were turning away in heedlessness intentionally. And the proof of the intentionality here, the proof of the fact that they're doing it knowingly, um, is in the is again going to be in the in the verses that come after this because the proof will be there. You know, when you say, why are they going to be taken to task and punished for what they're doing? Mm-hmm. The proof will be, you know, as we start to read the, the chapter in the verses that come after it, it will come. So for me, this chapter, it really does stop this argument that why is God sending prophets? Why is, you know, people, you know, I, one of my teachers, one of my dearest teachers, he told me that people will not have a problem with believing that there's a God that there's a creator, there's a power, there's a higher power. You know, you could say that it's a mathematical equation out there that has led to the existence of the universe. No one's going to have a problem with that. He says they'll have, they'll have problems with the fact that God has sent people to tell them how to live their lives. Hmm. Like, you know, this is how you deal with economy. This is how you deal with war and peace. This is how you pray to God. This is how you are just. They will have a problem with that. And this is the Anbiya. Anbiya, the prophets. They will have a problem with the prophets. They will have a problem with the prophets, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And today, what do you see? You'll find organizations that will say you can have freedom of religion, you can have interfaith dialogue, you can have all these things. You have tea and crumpets and biscuits, everything, but don't mention a prophet who's telling you how to live your life. And God forbid that you tell other people that what you are now doing is going to harm yourself, your families, your environment. Society, the economy. That's what prophets did. Look at the Prophet's final sermon. Hmm. In front so of 140. The, yeah. The Sheikh, the second ayah, right? Mm-hmm. Now, 
So whatever new reminder comes to them from the Lord, they only listen to it jokingly. Now, so there are three things that so far we've covered in these two eyes. First, it's a given that there is going to be a day of judgment. There is accountability. Mm. That's the news. And then people are heedless. And we know why people become heedless. And the symptoms, I mean, classic I've taken from you today is a heedless person is the one who goes into depression very quickly because something has gone wrong. Mm. That means that the person has lost the bearings and he doesn't know or he, she doesn't know his, his, her place in this cosmos. Uh, why things happen, why things are happening to them and they are causing what to others. Uh, understood. Now that this aspect of they, only listen to it jokingly. Now, the mm. the reverse of this is, so the people who are, what I see, my question would be, what I see that people who are religious, people who follow religion, they are supposed to be the ones who are not taking this message in a joking way. Mm-hmm. I'm in Lahore. Lahore's jammed. There is no, on a phone, there is no signal just now. Uh, mm-hmm. Because some there's a section uh-huh. of community here uh, who is making a protest. They understand religion. They love the the, the, the love of the prophet is there, and yet my city is jammed. Mm-hmm. And there are people on the other side of the society. They apparently are organized. They are educated. They are successful. They are the ones who are the helm of affairs. They are the ones who are the trendsetters of the society. And due to them is what, whatever this country is, it is running. And people who claim to have this message are the ones who are the cause at the moment of the city to be at, at its knees. Mm-hmm. How, so where's the, where's the question? How do I rationalize this? How There are friends, there are people who are around and they look upon you, people who understand apparently Quran are the cause of this throughout the world just now. So I'm not sure about the exact um, details of what's going on in Lahore at this moment in time. I've had a quick sketch of things and I I understand this is, is, is a perennial um, issue that is not going to go away. It's it's going to be there for a long time because there is such a you know this is such an important topic. You opened up. But it's it's one of these things that to be religious and to you know quote unquote religious and to take your religion seriously. Um, to what degree do you have to then take into consideration practicalities? Now, not practicalities like. Is, is this, will this work or will this not work? Is it a good time? Will it affect the economy? Will it make life difficult for people for a short period of time? We're not talking about that. We're talking about practicalities and pragmatism, which the Prophet himself would have taken into account when deciding something. So let me say that religious leaders, on my experience of this over 30 years of observing, are not the best leaders in terms of thought leaders. This is a stem. I've, I've spoken to people in Turkey. I've spoken to people in Morocco and Egypt, in Syria and you know in, in Saudi Arabia and back in the UK and Europe. It, it's a common. For me, it's, it's one of these real truths that religious leadership lacks the the qualities of. Leadership, which require, which can can get what we need achieved, and the the famous story that comes to mind in this discussion is the the, the story of Hudaybiyah, when the Prophet Ali Salatu Wasalam, um, you know, famous story, such a beautiful story. It is, I mean, I, I wish I could do a, a case study on leadership based upon Hudaybiyah. Because there's so much that I think even people, scholars have not written about Hudaybiyah that needs to be written about the way the Prophet Sallallahu you know, unilaterally decided after after the Battle of Khandaq in which the Quraysh had come with Bani Ghatafan and the, and the Jewish tribes from Khaybar 
and see, besiege the city of Medina Nawara to the point the Prophet was told in the Quran that the believers' hearts came to their throats with such fear. Alhamdulillah, Allah protected the community at that point and the, the, Abu Sufyan left and everything dissipated. The Prophet then did a master stroke, decided to take a group of Muslims to Umrah. And what was amazing about this is that you cannot attack people that go on pilgrimage. And so the Quraysh could not do anything about them. But the Prophet did something that was a masterstroke, which I've never seen any scholar write about, which is he sent before in front of his own caravan, he sent a hundred horsemen, at the head of whom was Muhammad ibn Maslama, who was a companion from the Ansar. He was from Bani Khazraj and he had affiliations with Bani Aus. And he was kind of in between and he was the, I would call him the knight of the Prophet ﷺ. He was the one the Prophet used to send out to do very dangerous tasks. And when anybody, when anybody saw him, they knew there was trouble. You know, like, you know, imagine if I sent somebody to you and I needed something done. And this person I sent is known to just be a person you only send if you want somebody's, you know, some damage done to the person. You get a message just by the person, regardless of what the person says. You'll think, why did he send him? He could have sent X, Y, or Z. Why did he send this, you know, really kind of aggressive person? He was at the front of this this um, caravan, which forced the Quraysh to stop the Prophet wasallam from coming on pilgrimage. Because the victory of Hudaybiyah was the fact that they did not, and they were not allowed to go to, to pilgrimage. Say, for example... Allah had allowed the, the, the companions to go, to go on pilgrimage and they came back. Nothing would have been achieved. The most you could say is the Muslims were not attacked because they're in a state of ihram and the Quraysh submitted to the, to the rules of, of sanctity of, the, of, of, the, of Mecca al-Mukarramah and the Muslims went back and they had a small victory. They went back and they were happy. Nothing happened. Nothing was achieved. What was achieved was the Prophet by sending Muhammad ibn Maslama, forced the Quraysh to stop them and forced the Quraysh to set up a camp where they had to negotiate with the Prophet and negotiate in a way that long term Islam could be established on every single corner of this earth, essentially. The Prophet straight after Hudaybiyah sent letters to Heraclius in, in, in the Byzantine Emperor in Constantinople, to the, to the Persian Emperor, to the emperors of, of, of Abyssinia, to the emperors of Egypt, all the four corners of the globe, all done by this amazing leadership, which is one where every single companion that we know of had misgivings about what was happening. Omar was constantly fidgeting with his sword. You know, Abu Bakr was silent, looking at what was happening. Mughir ibn Shu'bah was smashing the hands of people who were who were mocking the Prophet Ali and everybody was just about to boil over into war. And the Prophet is there saying, Okay, rub out my name. It's no it's not Muhammad Rasulullah. Okay, Muhammad ibn Abdullah. You know, not Bismillah Rahman Rahim, Bismik Bismik Allahum, right. You know, the Prophet gave in and everything. Because essentially he knew that there's a long term strategy and plan here. And as long yeah and, and, and as long as you're not negating and submitting and you have a plan in place, you know, that is the prophetic method. And I think what has happened now is that the literalism in the Muslim community, in terms of scholars specifically, in, in refusing to think about things in a way that is in line with the prophetic thinking. And, uh, you know, people will say you're just being, uh, uh, you know, selling out. No, this is a seerah. If, if there's one thing you learn from the seerah, it's this. Muslim scholars have, 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 have lost the courage to follow the seerah and the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Because following it means you're not popular. Do you think the Prophet ﷺ, you know, if you want to measure it in this way, that the, it, it was popular what the Prophet did? When he said, okay, we're going to go out of Ihram and go back to Medina Nabra. Does anyone seriously think the seerah says that the Prophet was popular when he did that? Any any scholar, anybody alive or dead would say that never. So Islam is, as a scholar is not to be popular, is not to see where political ideas and theology and and ideology and movements and what the social trends are today about gender and politics and economy and and all these things are and say okay then I'll you know I'll this is what I'll do to be popular. Mm. 
you know, to, to the world of popularity, the, the religion is difficult. The Prophet said, As related by Imam Ahmad, you know, this religion is tough, it's difficult to grasp, and therefore be, you know, to be kind and to be um, gentle with your application of religion. This is why you find people, the harsher you get, the easier it is to be a religious person today. Mm-hmm. You know, the, who, who can't be rough and angry and demonstrate and fight? This yeah. is the easy option. You know, wallahi is this the easy option to. Sh- you know, wallahi is this the easy option to shout and 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 just raise your voice and to smash things up. De- the the deconstruction and destruction of things is extremely easy. You know, what's difficult is building, yeah. to build a state, to build a city, to build a a country which can over a generation stand on its own two feet and provide for its own population. Understanding the way that the the world system is today, that is difficult. And so you have a whole strand of people in the West, in in, in UK and in America, who have sit on this high moral high ground and point fingers at everything and and say they have the solution to everything and they say they want to bring a khilafah and all the rest of it, while not even knowing the ABC of khilafah, while not even knowing the practicalities of how a nation state is, is set up, not knowing the way that international treaties and and obligations are to be met, or if you don't want to meet them, then what's the process of doing that and and creating a parallel system? No idea. And so, you know, how long will this cycle continually go on? I think this is why most of the scholars that I studied that, you know, when I used to question this, and I sometimes disagreed with them, and I would always be agitated when they said it, they would always say, you know, when people said we need to create an Islamic state, they would always say, you know, first of all, create it within your heart. And I, I always used to think, that's just um, niceties. But you know, the, the thing, they weren't, they didn't mean, you know, religion has nothing to do with public life. That's not what they meant. They were to the, the general population, they were saying, look, there's so much you have to get on with today in your own life, in your own private sphere with your family and your friends and your work colleagues and your business and the, the people that you can influence Make that an environment where people see this is how Islam is lived. And then after that, once you get that right, let's talk about, um, okay, you want a, a state system? Let's do it. This is Radio Ramadan. Um, Surah Ambiya is what we are covering in Reflections uh, on daily basis up until tomorrow. Uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.